Hello and welcome to Not To Get Political, the podcast where we delve into the world of politics and hope to remain unscathed. Today I am joined by Sam Bright, author and journalist, to talk about the Bullington Club, an elite dining society at Oxford University which has attracted many headlines over the years and some faces that you might recognise. Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Um, what is the Bullington Club? So the Bullington Club is a notorious elite society, or elitist I should say, society at the University of Oxford um it essentially practices privilege and debauchery in the most ridiculous and sordid of of ways so it only accepts male members from three schools three um elitist private schools eton harrow and westminster and the boys essentially play at being world king for a while um while they're at university and they go around the various eating and drinking establishments of Oxford and um, trash the place, um, act the fool, and then leave a wad of cash on the table as a sorry note to the poor waitresses and and waiters who have to pick up the mess. And the book is an uh, analogy that that's exactly what's been happening to the country in the same way that they've ransacked the restaurants, they've ransacked Britain. So how long has this society been going on for? Um, you know, over a hundred years. This is a this is a British institution. Um, famously, you know, members of the royal family were part of the club and um, who, were forced which, which, to drop members? out. I think it was Edward, um, Edward, who who abdicated. Though, cut that out if um, if I'm wrong. Um, but you know, members of the royal family who were actually forced to drop out because of the club's reputation, even in the 20th century when codes of conduct were perhaps a bit more civil and restrained. The Bullenden Club has, you know, for well over a a century, has been the heart of ostentatious privilege and debauchery at the heart of the British establishment, which has filtered through um, plenty of people into positions of political and economic power once they've graduated from the Society and the University of Oxford. Because obviously there's that infamous photo that was taken in the 80s and there's quite a few recognisable faces. Can you talk us through who we might recognise in that photo? Yeah, well, you'll see several early iterations of people who've been in charge of the country in recent times. Um, So you'll see Boris Johnson famously with his plume of blonde hair, you know, very distinguishable from the crowd. Um, You'll see George Osborne, the former... Chancellor, the notoriously the austerity yeah. chancellor who cut public services brutally for the vast majority of people. He went to St. Paul's School and in fact he was called an oik because St. Paul's, one of the poshest private schools in the country, apparently isn't posh enough for the Bullingdon Club. Um, and then you'll see his social superior and political superior, um, David Cameron, um, who is also in in that notorious picture? Who, of course, became prime minister? Um, you know, not too long before Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. You know, another fellow Old Etonian, former Bullingdon Club member. So it's a very shallow gene pool. The British political aristocracy, as our social aristocracy is as well. And some of the other people in that photo. Am I right in thinking that the co-founder of Ocado was at one point in the uh, Bullingdon? I. I'm not 100% sure, but I I would not be surprised. You know, you see the heads of our military establishment. You see, in fact, the head of our religious establishment, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, went to Eton, if not um, the Bullingdon Club. 
Um, you know, it's it's not just the political establishment that is drawn from the Bullenden Club. Um, they have fingers in um, a multi- multitude of different pies um, through which British society is organised and through which we, you know, um, experience the the modern world. So how have they been able to get to where they are today if they've been part of this club that have engaged in such debauchery and um, vile behaviour? Well, it's interesting and it's, you know, probably a study that historians should embark on you know I touch on it in the book I think I think part of it is an innate social deference that we all hold in one way or another unfortunately towards the aristocracy we've been taught um, the working class has been taught throughout history that those who speak in a certain manner with um, proper enunciation of their vowels even if they're saying the most hideous things you know racist things fascist things if they've um, been part of societies where they've behaved appallingly towards their fellow man, that, you know, all that matters is that you can impress people in the debating fields of Eton and in the Oxford Union. It's, it's I mean, this is, this is Boris Johnson through and through. Um, he pretended to be left-wing in order to become the president of the Oxford Union. And the Oxford Union, during its debates rewards not those with conviction it rewards people who make the best argument so you can often be invited when you're part of the oxford union to argue a case that you don't actually believe but if you argue it persuasively enough you'll win the debate and that sort of idea has channeled through his life we saw it during the eu referendum campaign where he wrote one letter in favor of leave and one letter in favor of remain and it's sort of teaches these people to have quite um, weak, a weak moral compass. And when you combine that with, you know, a sense of deep um, passion for power, such as they have, they're willing to do anything using their child, their charm, their aristocratic well, it's like the style. It's like the idea of, you know, if you don't like uh, this set of values, I've got another set just in the drawer. Well, exactly. exactly. So let's... How would one go about joining the Bullingdon Club? If you were an 18-year-old uh, guy, you've just joined uh, Oxford University and you wanted to join this infamous dining society, how would you go about it? Well, I, I'm not sure I, I would be the first person to ask, as, as you can probably tell. I, I wouldn't be the first on the list to uh, be, be, be scouted. But I think what, what happens generally is that um, you have to obviously, first of all, come from a certain social background. And you have to be ostentatious in that social background. So you have to be known. You have to be a big name on campus. You know, you have to be somebody who fits the the mode of, um, you know, mo- moral uh, a moral empty shell, really. Someone who's willing to have a good time. And then you'll be scouted. There are scouts for the Bullingdon Club who are, you know, ostensibly employed by the club to go out and pick members. Um, and it will be the people who swim in the same social circles, you know, the first years who make friends with the second years because they can instinctively, they instinctively crowd together around people who sound the same as them and have the same sort of backgrounds and go to the same clubs and parties, etc. So it's certainly not a meritocracy. It's, you know, the aristocracy sort of self-selecting its own cohort of um of, uh, of of fools and vagabonds. So let's say that I am 
let, we're saying, well, obviously I probably wouldn't be uh, be selected. But let's say someone is selected that they've been chosen. How, what's the initiation process like? Because obviously with any uni society, there is an initiation. I can speak to a few when I was at uni, but I would imagine they were nothing like the Bullingdon clubs. Yeah, so we actually, for the for the book, we got um, a former Bullingdon club member to write the introduction, John Mitchinson. Um, and he didn't go to a private school at all. So he thinks he is the only state-schooled person ever to have been scouted to the bullying club. You must have been quite impressive then. If well, that's the, uh... he said that he hosted good parties. And right. knowing John now, I can say that's probably the case. <laughs> um, he, won't, he won't begrudge me for saying that. Um, but he was saying his initiation ritual involved uh, a group of lads storming into his, um, his dorm room um stripping him bare spraying champagne all over the room and then um carting him off to their favorite restaurant to um to trash the place and then leave him there at the end of the night in a in a drunken stupor in fact there's even better there's a, there's not just joining the society but what what because you've got to think that there are some members of the Bullingdon club who are sickened by it you know they go into it thinking it's going to be a great time and by the end, they think, oh, this, this isn't me, really. Um, there must be people with moral fibre who do join. And John was one of those. And he tells the story in the introduction of um, him leaving the club, which, which was when he was sat at a restaurant on a Wednesday night with his girlfriend at the time in Oxford. And a fellow Bullingdon club member walks into the restaurant, sits down with them for a few minutes. And they had um, a bottle of port on the table. His friend takes the bottle of port to the, to the gents, comes back a, a few minutes later with the with the bottle of port and says to the waitress, oh, um, I'm afraid the, the port's gone off. And she says, oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. She takes it away, comes back a few minutes later and says, you three are the most despicable people I've ever met in my life. Please get out. Um, because he had urinated into the bottle of port and, you know, shrugged his shoulders. That was the, that was the done thing. But John thought at that point, I'm I'm out. I can't be hanging around with these sort of people. Urinate, sorry, urinated in a bottle of port. What? That's just grim. But what? What do you think goes through these people's minds when they think that that's okay to do? Yeah, exactly. And I I think it's that sort of, um, it's sort of an attitude towards others. You know, a sense that a sense of superiority, and a sense that everybody else is inferior, and particularly people who are servants. And I think in the instance of the Bullingdon Club members, the overwhelming majority of society are their servants because they come from wealth, privilege, power. Even despite the fact that they're very young, they can hold a room, they have influence, they can manipulate because of their money and their social status. I think this is, uh, you know, the other um, sort of, way in which the Bullingdon Club has entered popular consciousness was through the Riot Club, which was the film that came out a few a few years ago, um, that again just depicted the sort of behaviour that, that these boys commit and the sort of protected status that they have. You know, there will be people in government, in cabinet, in Whitehall who've been to Eton, who've been to the Bullingdon Club, and they look out for their own. You know, there'll be these these lads who are part of the Bullingdon Club will be able to appeal to the alumni yeah. to help them out if things get 
Roping. But, but this is what's interesting. If you look at the way that in, in that case that that guy behaved, you know, pissing in a bottle of port and the, 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 vulgar, the, sort of the vulgar nature of it. And you think people would look at that sort of case and think, you know, it's just, you know, a bit of rough and tumble, you know, smashing stuff up. And that if we look at, you know, when, you know, kids are, you know, maybe spray painting stuff on a council estate and it's the entirely, it, it kind of gets flipped on its head. And it's like, you know, we need to bring in ASBOs. We need, you know, law and order. It's that sort of attitude. Why do you think that is? Well, again, it's it's this, um, you know, innate... Def- well, for one, we have the people creating the rules <laughs> who used to be part of the club. You know, they're not going to punish themselves. And not only, you know, did they um, do these things when they were at university, as we've seen during Partygate, they did exactly the same things, are doing exactly the same things when they're in government. You know, um, there'd be multiple stories recently about not just Boris Johnson's administration, but Liz Truss's. You know, Liz Truss is a, you know, comprehensive school girl um, originally from, from well, she was she was schooled in Leeds. Um, and yet even she has bought into this mindset because it is all pervasive within the Conservative Party, the Bullingdon Club ethos, right? And we've seen stories of, you know, reports of uh, traces of cocaine being found at Chequers when she was Prime Minister, of the... Um, of it wasn't the pajamas it was the there was something yeah something an item of clothing was stolen or not stolen it was taken from the premises and they didn't want to i, I know the case that you're referring to but i don't know like what precisely was taken but yeah, i, know I think it was dressing to. gowns actually i think it was dressing gowns like were were stolen from from checkers you know the the sort of you know the rumors about um the behavior of people in liz truss's operation tells exactly the same story as Boris Johnson and David Cameron, etc., which shows that fundamentally they still have the Bullingdon Club mentality when they grow up, when they're making laws. And so that filters down through how they treat society, both in terms of the people who they see as their social equals and particularly the working class who they continually want to punish while they pretend to be world kings and queens. One of the initiations that I've heard of um, with the Bullingdon Club that's been described is burning a £50 note in front of a homeless person. Is that true? So, well, it's actually front cover of the book is the burning 50 quid note. Um, so this has to be said is is is, is a rumour um, that is pretty well substantiated rumour. It, it came out through a very well-connected editor at the Daily Mail um, who um, reported on the fact that not too long ago, actually, this isn't in distant memory, not too long ago that this was one of the new initiation rituals that you would be burning a 50 quid note in front of in front of a homeless person. Um, it has to be said with a lot of stories about the Bullingdon Club, we know, you know, the sort of high ticket items through repetition. You know, we've had scouts come out and say, you know, the trashing of restaurants happened, you know, the hiring of prostitutes, for example. Um, John Mitchinson has corroborated that with his stories of, you know, um, he called it, you know, they considered it to be petty vandalism when they went out and trashed restaurants. It wasn't seen as a big thing. Um, but a lot of the rumours are protected by this, what they call a murder, which essentially is that um, they all agree not to gossip about the organisation um, while they're there and for, you know, the rest of their lives once they've left. And so this means that you essentially have a clandestine organisation where they're behaving, you know, appallingly and yet 
we sort of hear rumors and speculation that, you know, we can believe, fully believe to be true and, you know, has been reported in fairly credible ways, but we can't, we, we don't have the video, yeah, we don't yeah, have yeah. The video yeah. evidence to prove it. How do they buy each other's silence? How, how do they do that? Well, it's, it's a good point. I think it's like, I think it's really um, one in, all in. I think that they know the whole thing would crumble if it became, um, well, it's kind of, I guess it's mutually assured destruction, actually, isn't it? That they all have uh, material on each other. They all have compromise that if a story did make its way to the student press or more likely the national press, that... Um, you know, the the nuclear warheads would be flying in, in every direction <laughs> and no one would be left unscarred. So, you know, I think, and I think the initiation ceremony plays a really important part in that because I think you have to do something so abhorrent in that initiation ceremony that means as soon as you join the club, you are part of that mutually assured destruction that everybody else has got that, you know, documentary evidence that they can hold over your head. And that's quite, that must be quite repressive actually for the members of the club, you know, that they've got this band of brothers who actually have material on them hanging over them for the rest of their lives. You know, I don't sympathize with them, but it's, you know, you know quite, you can see how that would twist their emotional... Well, it's what you mentioned because when I've seen, uh, you know, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, um, David Dimbleby as well, when they've sort of talked about it, they... On the face of it, they seem to express this regret. But then you look at the policies uh, in the case of Johnson and uh, Cameron that they've introduced. And it's, as, as you said, it's like this, well, this is how you've been brought, to, uh, brought up to believe. Um, this is what you uh, aspire to do. There doesn't seem to be that regret. The clip I'm thinking of with, uh, with David Dimbleby was when Boris Johnson was on the Question Time panel. And um, the Bullington Club came up. And um, Johnson points at Dimbleby and says, yeah, no, Dimbleby, he was a Bullingdon man as well. And you can see sort of Dimbleby, this respected figure in British media in uh, covering elections, sort of this sort of look of shame on his face that he was part of this society and that he likely indulged in sort of similar activities. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And the, the way in which there has been a Bullingdon Club rivalry, so to speak, has been between the sort of more distant members of the club and the modern day iteration. Um, I think Dimbleby has been quoted as saying that, oh, it was just, you know, it was, it was just dinner parties and, you know, it was all just a bit of a bit of sport. And the building club was actually ruined by the likes of Cameron and Johnson and Osborne who took it too far. And it's, you know, part of that you can believe because you look at Johnson versus Dimbleby and like you say, Dimbleby has quite a lot of respectability and certainly a lot of um, public spirited um you know public spirited ethos yeah. um but also you wonder how much of that is just rewriting the record and trying to paint yourself in a good light i guess that's like with any sort of you, you take a look at with david Cameron, for example i'd say over the last few years he's kind of his position and what he did to the country has sort of been revised really because of how bad previous uh his predecessors has been uh with the likes of johnson truss uh sunak may to a certain extent as well has also gone through a, through a similar thing it's like both of both cameron and may have kind of been rewritten really and sort of because I think they both backed Remain for example that they're kind of seen in a bit more fonder light than say the uh, the others that have come after them. Yeah and I think that's one of the sort of worst revisions of modern British political history you know Cameron was I, I'd say he's probably the most radical prime minister of the past 13 years you know he cut local government spending by half 
half, like just slashed it. And expected the public services to stay the same. Exactly, to deliver at the same rate. He was, you know, the, the brainchild of Brexit. Um, he, we forget this now, but he cut the top rate of tax in the same way that Liz Truss did. He was a radical where the state was concerned, where taxation was concerned, where Brexit was concerned begrudgingly. And in this, in fact, he's even more of an archetype of a Bullingdon clubman than Boris Johnson is because Cameron can conceal it a lot more effectively than Boris Johnson can. Like everybody knows that Boris is, you know, elitist and he, he plays into that. Whereas Cameron is a PR man and Cameron kind of tries to portray himself. I mean, Cameron's slogan was, um, you know, hardworking people. Or, yeah. We're all in this together. We're all That's, in this yeah. together. And people swallowed it. You know, it was, it, it was, I mean, Boris did it to a similar degree with Brexit, but I'd say that, Cameron was the ultimate snake oil salesman. I guess that's the thing. He's, um, you know, son of a stockbroker um, whose family owned slaves or plantations. Am I right in thinking that? And that they were part of the people that were, uh, when uh, reparations were, well, we haven't had sort of reparations as such, but uh, when slave owners were compensated for their financial loss. So his family, for example, have been very much ingrained within the higher echelons of British society. Yeah, there's a, there's a great, there's a great um, story about David Cameron um, that, after he graduated Oxford and you know left the Bullingdon Club, he was thinking about what to do. And one day a phone call comes through to the Conservative Research Department and the head of the research department picks up and it's a me- member of the royal family on the other end of the line. And the mo- member of the royal family says, you're about to meet one of the most extraordinary young men. I've tried to dissuade him against politics, but he won't listen to me. Um, and you're going to be blown away. And it turns out that the person who walked into the room was David Cameron, who it was actually one of his family members who'd called up because David Cameron is, you know, has royal heritage. So those, you know. Sorry, and who, sorry, just who was the member of the royal family that spoke on his behalf? I I don't think that the story, I think it's an anonymous tipster. I don't think it was ever revealed to the member of the royal family who was, who who had that chat. But, um, But yeah, I mean, there's a level of sort of, um, privilege, yeah, and then there's there's that. I guess it's like the Bullington Club is their version of like NCS or DV. Like you know, the, the, oh yeah, you know, he did DV. We did DV together. He's really good. Did NCS makes the CV stand out. He was in the Bullington Club. He trashed restaurants. I can vouch for him. He's yeah. a good guy. Yeah, he's a solid chap. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, it's quite ironic actually that um, you know, I find it tedious when working class people are criticised because of their enunciation and their accents when I can barely understand what Boris Johnson is saying half of the time. I think, yeah, I think most of the country feels the same way, but I guess that's part of the act really. It's like you kind of see it with a lot of um, sort of debate lords, if you will, this sort of speaking very fast. Um, so it sounds like they're being very intelligent, but really it's just so the person they're trying to debate can't actually hear what they're saying. So then they stutter and they get confused. Similar with Johnson as well. It's, it's an act like the hair and I'm not one to talk, but it's the, you know, the ruffling of hair before interviews. Um, it's very much the, um, you know, the, the buffoon, if you will, the, the stereotype of a posh person with the, in the Bullingdon Club as well that's kind of just continued. It's like he hasn't really matured much past what, the age of 13 and 14, really. No, no, I, I, I don't think he has. I've been, um, yeah, for my sins, I've been reading uh, Sonia Pennell's biography of, of Johnson, um, which is excellent. And she tells his, you know, his, his background story and I think he does he does have a childishness to him. I think he understands 
better than most politicians how to use humor as a weapon uh, and that cuts th- that cuts through um to people that he otherwise wouldn't be able to access he's incredibly quick-witted and he's got a massive depth of knowledge and you know the way that he uses language is is you know this is the thing it's it's smart in the way that sort of like you say being an actor yeah. is it's memory recall that very say that's charismatic very... and he's this is one of the things I, i'd always be scared of meeting him because i've got i haven't got much time for him i think he's an awful person but i'd be scared to meet him speaks to me for like five minutes and walk away thinking he's actually all right yeah that, i think that's the thing that, that it's that that fear and because of how you know, we can read on paper this is an awful person. If you look at the stuff he said about Muslims, for example, um, about single mothers, uh, gay people, you think this is an awful person. And then you would meet him, you'd be like, oh, maybe he's not actually as bad as people are making out. But yeah. then, you know, you just got to read those quotes again and realise, no, th- this is an absolute bastard. Well, exactly. And I think that's part of the problem with the Westminster system. And it's called the Westminster Village for a reason in the fact that you have PR people, you have journalists, you have politicians all crowded together in a very you know, tight space with a lot of pubs and bars, etc., where they can essentially just become pals. And I think that immunizes them against criticizing one another. And as a result, you talk about part of the reason why they've been able to get to the top of politics, despite having the backgrounds that they've had. I think it's for that reason is because journalists in particular are scared of criticizing them because they know them in a social setting. They see them every day. They've been charmed by them. And so this core group of people who you'd hope will be holding power to account has actually become sort of weak and flaccid and isn't you know i guess that was i guess that was one of the beauties of when liz truss was prime minister and she went on local radio expecting it to be a bit of a pushover and there were these journalists who thought i'm never going to get you to come back on my show again but my listeners want to know what is going on is my mortgage going to go up you know when is tax going to be sorted out um and basically read other riot acts and she couldn't she couldn't handle it and yet you versus that with you know sort of the establishment journalists that you have within Westminster and though there was that level of scrutiny because they were like well she's going to be gone in a few days so we can just say whatever we like she's never going to come back apart from GB News uh, or turn up in you know Taiwan and give a speech about China um, it's uh, you know it's that sort of that yeah it's that lack of accountability which has been really been lacking for maybe the last 20 years or so um, in this country and actually probably going back further with a lot of the policies that have been introduced. Um, the example, I think austerity is the big one. You know, it, between 2010 to 2015, it killed 50,000 people because of the cuts that were implemented. Some figures suggest even 300,000. Um, and yet no one, like David Cameron, as you say, or George Osborne, they haven't been held accountable or dragged in front of an inquiry to really explain themselves as to why they did what they did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I've spoken a fair number of times in recent years to Sir Michael Marmot, who's a public health academic, you know, revered, world revered. He was commissioned by the new Labour government to study health inequalities just before the coalition came in. And he did a report 10 years after his first report, so in 2020, into what the causes were of grave social and health inequalities in this country. And he said that austerity had been the biggest factor in sending health backwards um, in this country, and that all the social the social determinants of health, so poverty, access to healthcare, um, education, etc., had all gone backwards over the previous ten years. And this is a guy, um, you know, 
immensely well respected in his field you know that it's not just us as you know angry commentators waving our fists on a podcast you know it is you know the point I'm trying to get across is that it is people right at the top of their academic field which is why incidentally you've seen the likes of Gove the likes of Truss coming after the woke academic establishment the new elite as Matthew Goodwin puts it because academics are smart enough to have seen what's taken place over the past you know 13 years and are calling it out and they want an alternative ecosystem that isn't concerned with facts um to put a different point of view which is essentially that we need to cut the state even more well i guess that was the thing for the basically from 2016 onwards particularly up till 2020 it was very much you know reject the advice of experts reject what they were saying you know don't listen to them they think you're stupid they think they know better than you you know what's right for you Come 2020, COVID comes along and now it's like, yeah, you know all those experts that we told you not to listen to? Um, you need to listen to them. By that time, people don't want to listen to them. It's like, well, hang on, you told us not to listen to them. You told us that they didn't know what they were talking about. They you know, don't have our interests at heart. Yeah. And it's like, no, but there is a respiratory virus going around, so we do need you to stay indoors, but we're not going to. Yeah. It was very much that sort of, um, yeah, it was kind of like the, the kind of had to flip it on its head really quickly. Yeah. Um, and the damage has already been done, as, as we've seen. Yeah, definitely. And I think... The way in which this will manifest, I mean, we've seen it manifest recently in terms of conspiracy theories and particularly conspiracy theories around like 15 minute cities and the world, world economic. Socialism is when Tesco is near your house. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. Turn, turn, turn Buckingham, Buckingham Palace into yeah. the big Tesco. Thank you very much. <laughs> but, but yeah, and I think we're going to increasingly see it. The battleground will be climate change now. The, that will be the big way in which they try to deny science deny the experts will be climate change that we shouldn't go for net zero that actually we should be pumping a load of carbon into the atmosphere is what some of them say um just the most ludicrous theories and as you say you know it might not be the likes of boris johnson and michael gove spreading those theories now but they broke the dam yeah and allowed it to be normal that these sort of um you know mad theories yeah. for want of a better it's like way alternative it. facts really it's like a, a Lawrence Fox said, um, it's not misinformation, it's just alternative information or something something along those lines in a, in a tweet. Um, I want to go steer back to the Burlington Club a bit more. What does it look like now? Because it's still around, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely still around. Um, it's, it's, it, again, it's difficult to pin down. It's difficult to know if they still have the same, you know, practices taking place. Um, I think they've been banned from most... Um, restaurants yeah. in Oxford. I'm not so, surprised. You know, maybe they've, they're just going around trashing each other's homes um, currently. But I mean, yeah, as of, you know, recently, um, one of the members was George Farmer, who um, is married, for those who know, to Candace Owens, who's a big Trump supporter in the United States. Um, Farmer's father, Michael Farmer, is a member of the House of Lords, conservative, of course, and big conservative donor as well. Um, and now I'm not suggesting that George might become um, prime minister anytime soon, though I'm sure he wouldn't object if he if he was. But that's just to kind of evidence the fact that it's still very much a social and political elite that gets to inhabit this space. Um, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people from who I know who went to Oxford and they sort of roll their eyes whenever I mention the Bullingdon Club and they're like, oh, you know, nobody hears about it. Nobody sees it. But it was interesting. I was back back in Oxford um, a few weeks ago and spoke to a taxi driver 
I know, you know, I didn't tell him who I was or, you know, about my book or anything. And he was talking about the private members clubs within Oxford, you know, conservative circles and how the amount of money that's swilling around, the amount of debauchery that's taking place in these circles is as bad as ever. So although it might not be, you know, the Bullingdon Club necessarily, there are plenty of other outlets at the university. It's like an offshoot, really. Exactly. And plenty of other... I mean, this is an analogy, you know, I'm not saying that Oxford University is the sort of the heart of power or heart of darkness of British society. You know, it's just an analogy. There are plenty... You know, I went to York University in the north of England and there was plenty of snobbery going around, you know, there in the same way that there is at Durham University and plenty of of other places. Um, So I think the point is that, you know, although the Bullingdon Club might recede you know, in our lifetimes, there'll be plenty of other horrible institutions that will take its place. And how do you think that we deal with the people that sort of come from these groups and start uh, dominating, you know, politics, journalism, uh, other forms of media? How do we deal with those people? How do we challenge them? Well, I think we've got to first understand that they're not better. They're not better than us. You know, I think... You and I, like you say, we we get in a room with those sort of people and either clam up or just, you know, even if you told yourself to have as strong conviction as possible and that yeah. you, 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 are, you are worthy to them, it's difficult because of the way that they're socially dominant. And I think as a collective force, as, you know, as people on the progressive end of the political spectrum, we've got to um, advocate for... Um, the morality of working class morals and of community and solidarity. Um, and I think that's diametrically opposed to the, um, you know, to the ideology, the every man for themselves, you know, quite scared ideology of the Bullenden Club. You know, the whole thing's built on mutually assured destru- destruction. It's about having, you know, horrible compromise over fellow members of the club. And, you know, essentially what progressives are saying is that there's a different club that we should all be signed up to that has a lot more respect and decency towards each other um, and protects our collective institutions. And that's part of an individual psychological thing, you know, to tell ourselves that these people aren't better than us. And it's also building collective institutions to rival, um, you know, the dominant aristocratic um, institutions of, of our past. Would you say, so at the moment, um, obviously the COVID-19 inquiry is going on, it's just started, um, and they've demanded that Johnson and anyone in government hands over their unredacted WhatsApp uh, conversations and also emails. Um, and it's very much, um, Johnson initially refused. And then Sunak um, said, well, I don't think, you know, anything needs to sort Sort of come out as such and then Johnson just actually a few hours ago um has like released all of his uh stuff there kind of hanging Sunak out to dry from what you've described it's very much that Bullington club mentality um of well you know we're all going to be gung-ho together but now I've realized that I can get one over you so I'm going to um I'm going to sort of hang you out to dry as it were yeah it's the political game it's the, that's it. there's a chapter in the book called the game because that's how they treat it you know from what I described earlier in terms of the sort of pretend um, debating chamber at the Oxford Union um, to the fact that they see politics as a way to fill their own pockets. It's all about not lives, not improving society or the country. It's about 
individual self-fulfillment, both in terms of ego, in terms of the power that they have over other people and their own financial self-interest. Um, so yeah, you can see that. And that will be the case repeatedly from now until the next election. They'll be fighting like rats in a sack. Um, the problem is that Westminster creates that sort, those sort of conditions among every party, um, which is why I, you know, I really hope for all the flaws of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet, I hope he has some sort of consistency with the people who are on that front bench, because I think people look at politics currently and think, God, I just can't keep like, how can someone who is in education one minute, how yeah. can they feasibly be in charge of like the military it's, the su- it's such a weird thing like reshuffles it's like can you imagine any other job where that would be the case like if you were a surgeon and you messed up big time it wouldn't be like well you know i'll just have a stint as a cleaner for a bit and i'll just go back to my old job yeah but you wouldn't do that you'd be put in front of a panel and made to be, be held accountable for what you've done exactly and it's not like going from the top level of one job to like the bottom level of another they're going from the top level they're like having a top level job messing up and then they're getting put in another top-level job. Yeah, like you say, no other part of society is that the case. And yeah, politics is unique and that happens. And you've got a limited yeah. pool to choose from. But fundamentally, people look at that from the outside and they think, well, no wonder they're not acting in my interests. Like, and so I want, I want Starmer to have people in position for a few years who know their brief and you know make this about policy making and not just a media a media game because that's what we've had for recent well i guess that's the thing it does feel like starmer is playing a media game so the example i give is with the public order bill he's come out and other uh, front bench labor politicians have come out and said that they won't repeal the bill um they're just going to allow it to sort of bed in the issue is is as we've seen it infringes on free speech particularly when it comes to the right to protest um Surely that is, I kind of, for me personally, I see that as a media game because he knows that if he comes out and says we're going to repeal it, it will be seen as he supports Just Stop Oil, he supports Extinction Rebellion. You know, he wants to shut down everything. He wants to rejoin the EU, which he's come out today and said that he's not going to. Um, how do you sort of respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one. I, I have a lot of sympathy for the, for the Labour front bench because they're coming up against a machine, a media machine. And we, sh- we saw it during Partygate, despite the fact that Partygate took Boris Johnson down. That was basically due to the efforts of a very limited number of journalists like Pippa Creer, um, you know, the ITV team. Um, when the tabloids knew about this, the tabloids took part in this, you know, um, for a long time. And then when the story came out, the tabloids, and particularly the Sun and the Daily Mail, um, denied that the story was significant and then tried to essentially make up a story about Starmer being in the wrong. And when you look at that apparatus and the way in which it has manipulated public perceptions over the past, you know, 30 years, you think, well, if I go to war with this machine, I'm going to get battered here. So to some extent, I can understand it. I think on the other side of the coin is that you've seen progressive politicians both here and the other side of the Atlantic do very well in terms of inspiring um, feeling on social media and sort of creating a tidal wave of, you know, of, of, of um, conviction because they stand up for what they believe. You know, Andy Burnham during the pandemic is a great example of someone who stood for his principles against the conservative government. And now he's an, he's an idol, you know, he's called the King of the North. And you don't see any tabloids trying to kick his shins, or at least not too often. Um, so I think there's definitely a case for Starmer 
you know, taking a principal stance when it's expedient to do so. But, you know, I do have, you know, sadly, uh, I do have some sympathy with, with his, his. I think a lot of people sort of definitely sort of do to a certain extent. I guess that that's the thing, as you've said. One of the things I've sort of discovered when sort of covering politics and talking about it is that when you expose the flaws of one side of the political aisle the immediate response you will get is well they're just as all bad they're all as bad as each other um as a, and i think that was kind of thing that we noticed during partygate um as, as you sort of said we deny it's ever a story you know it's not really that big of a deal um it then comes out we then see the photos we then you know sort of hear the uh sort of statements that have come out from various people and then it's well they're all as bad as each other because you know Starmer had a curry and it's that sort of you know it's that sort of, the desperation I think that you sort of mentioned, yes, as, as you've talked about, we say links back to the Bullington Club ethos. You know, we sort of stick together and if one person steps out of line, well, then they're getting taken down. Yeah. And, um, you know, they'll try and take us down as well. It's um, sort of the rats fleeing the sinking ship, if you will. Yeah, it's, yeah. And this is the thing that the, the media totally plays into this. Like, um, it's the case that during the Conservative leadership election, um, dos- do- dossiers were circulating um between the candidates and the media, um, you know, about the most sordid secrets of the other candidates. And the media doesn't put a stop to that. The media thrives in that scenario, in that gossip-led environment, you know, politics as celebrity culture. And ultimately, what is that doing? That's creating a system in which blackmail becomes the modus operandi of British politics because those secrets don't go away once the leadership election has concluded, they continue to sit in the back pocket of the media and they can be used at will. Boris Johnson's just fortunate because he is impervious to scandal and he can ride it out in a way that someone as wooden as yeah. and as you know attempting to be as clean cut as Rishi Sunak can't. Yeah. You know. But yeah, it's it's, you know, a really kind of yeah, it's it's an immoral environment that both politics and the media is creating. It's like, a, as you said with Johnson, it's like, um, what's the Monty Python thing where he's getting his limbs cut off and he's like, tis but a scratch. That is essentially what Johnson was doing. It's like, it did get to the point where it was like, you know, th- this is could this take him down? No, it won't take him down. To the point that when the Chris Pincher scandal came out, it was like, this is not going to take him down. And then it did. And then I think everyone was actually quite shocked about that. Um, and actually they're like, is he, is he actually going to go? Well, yeah. is he, is he, there was kind of that point where it's like, what if he just turns around and goes, I'm not leaving. Well, he he did, has this Wolf of Wall Street moment. Yeah, you know? he tried. He, yeah, he like tried to do it. And yeah. even now you think that he doesn't think he's dead. No. He thinks he can continue to survive. Like any normal person with a degree of humility will think, that's yeah. it, my race is run. But not Boris Johnson. It's like one of my things I like to say in my videos is like, what happened to shame? And it's yeah. like with Johnson, he just does not understand the concept of shame. No, no, exactly. And I think, you know, he's not unique. I you know, he's certainly got the biggest ego in politics at the minute, but there are plenty more who try to emulate him. Who would you say is his biggest rival in that sphere? Well, I actually think, what well, you mean in terms of ego or in terms of, you know, challenging the Tory throne in future? I would say, well, well, let's say both. In terms of, oh, that's a good question. Who's got the biggest ego in, in politics? Um, oh, that's a real, that's a cracker, I tell you. Uh, I'd say Swallow Braveman is really quite high up there because I don't think you could say or believe the things that Swallow Braveman says without having just an immense amount of arrogance to think that you're right. 
because it's not based on fact or logic or any sort of you know level of human decency. So it's got to be she she deeply thinks that she's correct. Well, it's like her comments about grooming gangs, for example. Her the Home Office's own stats disproved what she said. Yeah, but exactly, and that's the thing with the likes of Johnson and Braverman is that facts don't get in the way of their egos. Their egos are all-consuming. Um, on the point about the Tory, you know, the future of the Tory party, I think he's cooked. He doesn't think he's cooked, but he's cooked. Like, my theory is, has been that, you know, the Brexit voting red wall sent Johnson down to Westminster, despite him being, you know, this, this posh boy, because he was a rogue. They like the fact that he speaks his mind. Um, and they sent him down to trash the way that politics had been done and to deliver Brexit. And he delivered Brexit and then he proved himself through Partygate to be one of, you know, the same as the yeah. rest, as you were saying. Yeah. He, pr he proved himself to be, you know, flawed and a politician, you know, a deeply cynical politician. Um, and as a result, he's in the same camp as Nick Clegg when he betrayed his promises, as Tony Blair when he betrayed his promises. Boris Johnson is now a fallen hero and he will never regain the same position that he that he had in 2019. You know, and once the public turns on you, that's it. And I think I think he's a goner, thank God. If only his um, knowledge of Shakespeare could let him know that he's at the uh, the tragedy. He's at the end. He's at the fire. He's at Act Five of his tragedy. <laughs> um, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's going to sound like a silly question, but is there anything that you'd like to promote before you go? Yeah. So the book, obviously, um, if anyone wants to buy it, head to Bullingdon-Club.com and they'll be able to pick up a copy from Byline Books. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And to all of you uh, listening and watching, thank you so much for the kind words that you've been sending in and we will see you for the next one. Thank you.